You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Glad to be here, Kyla. Nice to talk to you. Haven't seen you in a while because you were way up north. Way up north. You know, I, okay, this is embarrassing. But I only recently, as in yesterday while I was there, looked at a map to see where Whitehorse was. And the, the reason was I was trying to figure out whether I should have sushi for lunch. But, you know, I have like a rule, like most sensible people, that I'm not going to eat sushi somewhere that's too far from the ocean because, you know, and i I disagree with the sensibility of the rule but i understand many people have that rule go ahead i was trying to see how close whitehorse is to the ocean and it's basically like the difference between chilliwack and the ocean so i thought okay that's safe enough um but i did not realize that whitehorse is further north than juneau alaska uh i think it's further than the ocean (laughs) to the ocean than Chilliwack, but yes, it is, uh, it's further north than Juneau. Yeah. Juneau's sort of, uh, Alaska sticks down a little bit and, uh, yeah, Whitehorse is way up there. What surprised me is that the weather that you were reporting was not a lot different than the weather that we normally would experience in Edmonton when I grew up at this time of the year. So I don't know if that's an issue of global warming or uh, if Edmonton basically experiences similar weather to Whitehorse, which would seem unlikely considering it's that much further north. Well, but you but, never know. I mean, you know, it's it's relative to the ocean and then the continental aspect and I don't know. People in Whitehorse that I was talking to were saying that it was the coldest fall day they've had all year. Huh. Well, so. coldest fall day. Yeah, that would make sense because fall continues on. As it does. It's the coldest day since, I guess, spring, probably. Well, currently in Edmonton, right now, it's six degrees. And in Whitehorse, Yukon, Canada, it's two degrees. So not really that different. And nine degrees in Vancouver. But the big departure is about to happen, where where it's still going to be nine degrees in Vancouver. In, uh, in a month, and it's going to be minus 20 in uh, Edmonton and minus 30 in Whitehorse. It snowed while I was there, so. Well, there you go. 70% chance of snow right now. Well. But not so bad. I mean, that's not too bad. I, I just thought it would be colder. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, yes, I was in Whitehorse. I'll be in Whitehorse again a lot. I think I have to go to Whitehorse five more times. In 2021. Now, are you playing gigs in the club there? Is that it? Are you performing or is it? Yeah, it's Boxcar Kyla hits the road, uh, yeah. appearing at the the Beaver and Moose. And the Whitehorse Motor Inn. <laughs> I say the Beaver and Moose like it's the name of a place that would be in Whitehorse, but it probably is the name of a place in Whitehorse. Uh, I think the, uh, the Whitehorse Motor Inn is probably also a place that could be in Whitehorse. Yeah, probably. So, I would so that's an exciting thing. You just got back. I haven't seen you. Nice to talk to you. And uh, you're in your home and I'm in the studio. And here we are recording and you have found some uh, interesting things. 
Yeah, well, I thought we would start by talking about the city of Vancouver again. And I know a couple weeks ago, we talked about the city of Vancouver, and we talked um, about how uh, they were making the patio program permanent. Um, Today, uh, I thought we'd talk about the debate that was last night or two days ago, if you're listening to this on Friday, with um, the city council, where they were considering a a climate-based motion. And essentially, there were two prongs to it. The first prong was that people who had cars that were like emission-y, especially older cars, but it would apply to ultimately to all gas-powered vehicles eventually, um, would have to pay a certain amount of money a year to be able to park their car on the street. And this is essentially a tax to prevent people from having cars in Vancouver or driving into Vancouver from the other neighboring municipalities. The second component to it was a parking permit that people would have to buy for overnight parking. So all of the van life people, uh, all of the people that are living in their vehicles because they can't afford a home, and people who don't have driveways, parking pads, et cetera, who have to park their vehicles on the street overnight would have to buy one of these overnight parking permits. So basically it would punish everybody who's not wealthy enough to have a garage or a driveway. Well, this was the this was the debate. Essentially, the city council was divided. It uh, the motion failed. Um, six people voted against. Five people voted for. I heard that, and the tiebreaker was the mayor. The tiebreaker was the mayor, and it was a big deal because everybody thought, you know, the mayor is very progressive on uh, on climate change, and and he's going to, you know, he's going to do this. Um, he's going to vote uh, vote for it, but he did not. Well, he's a he was NDP, and the NDP often don't follow through and I'm not knocking the NDP for this. I'm saying they don't follow through on climate change stuff because they're concerned about the impact it's going to have on lower income people. And that's a legitimate concern. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, the, the problem is for fuel prices, for example, when fuel prices are low, people buy big pickup trucks, uh, fuel prices go up and it's, uh, and that's great. It reduces the number of kilometers that people drive. People buy more fuel efficient vehicles. Um, you know, that's one of the results, but it's also hard on people. The taxes on fuel, especially those people who have to drive. Yeah. You see my point? I totally know. And so all that fuel taxes is, uh, is really burdensome to people who have to drive and, and very often. For the sake of having a place to live, you have to live further out and you have to drive further. Your savings that, uh, that you hope to uh, accomplish as a result of the fact that you've moved out to the burbs uh, is, uh, can be quickly sucked up. Well, and think about the inequity of it. And this was, you know, after voting against the motion, the mayor gave this example of, of a person who owns a house who has a, a tenant living in the basement who works as a landscaper who's bought a pickup truck which they need to do their work or any other type of tradesperson. And they're paying ultimately like $1,000 a year while their landlord, who may drive a Ferrari, can park it in the driveway and pay nothing. Yeah. So it's been sort of sent back now, right? The uh, I heard somebody, uh, uh, I don't sent know. Sent back to uh, do more study. Yeah. Whoever the, the Green Party person is on the Getting council. Something. Yeah, said they were going to send it back to do more study. But you can see the trend here. It's just a matter of time. So they've talked about uh, they've talked about uh, having a toll for driving into downtown. 
They've talked about trying to tax people now just for having a vehicle on the street. Mm-hmm. And you can sort of see that because, I mean, you, you park your vehicle on the street and you pay nothing for it, right? Like, it's, you, you're not paying for the parking spot. Well, lots um, of places you do. Look, look, you... No, but I, I'm saying in the spots that you don't have to. You know, you yeah, are getting that my advantage. neighborhood. Yeah. It's not an advantage in my neighborhood. See, this is part of the flaw in the argument. There's plenty of places in Vancouver where parking is at a premium. The West End, Kitts Point, two great examples where, you know, it's very difficult to find a place to park. And so the city has created parking only for residents and you have to purchase a permit at City Hall. People are already paying for the right to park in front of their home. And that's fine for those places. Where I live, out in southeast Vancouver in Killarney, where most people don't even know where that is, parking's not at a premium, usually. Um, You know, I almost always get the spot directly in front of my house. I'm annoyed when I don't. Estate. You're a state. Yeah. um... So why, why should I have to pay for something that nobody wants? No, I hear you. Anyway, the, uh, it's just a matter of time. I'm telling you that the, the city's going to do this and, and they're going to find that they're going to get support and they're going to get support because traffic is getting so damn bad. Uh, you know, pandemic time, pre-pandemic, it was bad. Traffic was bad and it was often miserable and people were angry about it and, and citizens of, residents of Vancouver were angry about it. Uh, you know, all of the people who come driving in from West Vancouver fill up the downtown and people come driving into downtown and, and traffic's bad. Since they, uh, the pandemic started, more, more streets in Vancouver have been converted to narrower, smaller streets for more bike lanes. And there was uh-huh. lots of support for that and too. bus lanes. Lots of support for that in the pandemic, of course. They, I mean, they were ready to close down Stanley Park to, uh, to cars for forever. Uh, and now we have the end of the pandemic. There's lots of traffic. It may not be full on, uh, uh, pre pandemic. I mean, it may get a lot worse when more people come downtown because there's still a lot of partially empty parkades downtown, but the traffic is awful. And I think they're going to be able to persuade themselves at some point, not too far in the future that uh, that they have to do something drastic. And I think the something drastic is going to be on the downtown peninsula. You cross a bridge, Canby Bridge, Oak Street Bridge, Granville Bridge, the viaduct. You come into to downtown, they're going to have toll cameras and we're all going to be paying to drive into downtown. Okay, so let me say two things. The first thing I want to say is I spoke about this on Soapbox Social, which for those of our listeners who don't know, um, Soapbox Social is a weekly program on CBC Radio on, on the coast with Gloria Makarenko Thursdays from 4 to 4.30. Tune in um, with me and Mo Amir, um, where we talk about whatever. Um, but the, uh, Today we were talking about this, and Mo suggested that um, people who own houses would still have to pay in the sense that having a driveway having a parking pad or having a garage where you can park your car is a taxable improvement on your property. Hmm. Is it? I mean, well, it is, you, it, is you, it is a you, taxable improvement. You can just drive into your, into your grass, basically. I mean, in Vancouver, you could throw a few sidewalk blocks down and drive into yeah. your yard. I could take my fence down and drive into my yard if I didn't have a dog. Um, but it's, 
But that's a ridiculous way of looking at it. That's not saying, oh, you know, well, the inequity is offset by the by the discrepancy in property taxes, because your property taxes, you're not paying for the privilege of parking your car in front of your house when you're home for the night. Your property taxes, you're paying tax on an appreciating asset. At the end of the year, you're still making money. You're still getting richer because that house is not getting worth less than you paid last year. It's not. You built a driveway, the the place is worth more money, you pay more taxes, but the place is yeah. worth more money. And it's appreciating in value faster <laughs> than your taxes are going up. So you're or, actually uh, making more money than the tax. The parking so that you rent not. from the city on the street does not does not appreciate for you in any way. No. Yeah. And and even if if I pay if me, if I were to pay the city for the privilege of parking my car in front of my house, that doesn't guarantee me that the spot in front of my house is gonna be available. Like I don't get anything more for it. And I, I agree with you a hundred percent, but now, you know, oh. the, the issue is how are they going to, how are they going to do this? I mean, this is just a sort of a, a, an attack on drivers to try and reduce the number of drivers that are coming into Vancouver. They're trying to reduce the cars on the road, right? See, I, and I and the target it, is gas cars. And how are they going to do it? I view it similar to you in the sense of this is yet another attack on drivers, but it's not an attack on drivers from the idea that we want to reduce the number of cars. That's that's what they say it is. But really, it's an attack on drivers because people view other people who have cars as being an ATM, right? Like we see governments do this all the time. Well, all sorts of additional fees and costs that are imposed on drivers compared to people who don't drive. Licensing, insurance, renewing your driver's license, you have to pay 70 bucks just for the privilege of getting another card in the mail. Like, um, but, you know, what, all of but the different fines okay, I'll take the opposite side for a second. How did we persuade ourselves that uh, a little biological creature, human, should be entitled to push around two tons of steel and glass and rubber uh, just to get around and do the things that they want to do? You know, how did we persuade ourselves? That, I don't have an answer for how we persuaded ourselves, Pat Paul, but it doesn't matter. This is where we are. And there are many, many people in our society, you and me included, who are dependent on their vehicles to do their job. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm driving a lot. I spend a lot of time in the day driving for work purposes, um, the way it goes. And, so, and just to get to and from work and fulfill all my other duties, you know, I try and, and, uh, and, and fulfill all of my duties with my kids and to my household and to the staff and to, you know, <laughs> and, and, and to continue to, to get all of that stuff done. I couldn't do it without a car. So this is the second thing I want to say is to me, this is the city going, we have an obligation because we made this big commitment to, you know, climate change action as a city. We have an obligation to now do something. What is the easiest way that we can do it while also generating city revenue? Because, you know, that money's not going into like some type of some type of green project for the city. Like it's not being set aside into some special funds that's going to, I don't know, plant more flowers that'll bring bees or whatever. Right? It's going into the city coffers to pay city employees <laughs> to do city jobs, like drive garbage trucks and city build bike lanes, trucks. build bike lanes mm -hmm. and build bike lanes. Exactly. Mm. So I have ideas. <clears throat> I have ideas of things that the city could do. That would be green, that would not tax drivers or disproportionately affect low-income people. Okay, let's hear them. Number well, one. 
Number one, they could amend the bylaws related to unsightly yards. As you well know, I like to have my yard have waist-height grass with all sorts of wildflowers and whatever grows there grows, and it attracts bees, and it is good for the air, and it's climate-friendly. And the city comes into my yard every time it gets to just the right height and says, oh, we've received a complaint, and your neighborhood is unseemly because of your yard, and you have to mow it or we're going to find you. Well, and you have lots of wildflowers and things like that growing in your yard. I still think you should get a goat. I mean, I, I'm a firm believer in, in having a goat. Friendly. A goat uh, is not climate friendly. How is it not? It produces methane gas. Yeah, but it's not as bad as a cow. <laughs> um, so get rid of the bylaws that prevent people from having their yards grow over. And on houses that are paying the empty homes tax, create a city fund to fund the planting of community-based gardens on the private properties of these people that aren't living in these houses anyway, plant oh. community-based gardens with flowers that attract bees and trees and things that are going to clean up the air. Some of those uh, those vacant houses are being left to to uh, collapse into dust, uh, yeah. to rot into the ground. I mean, I with- drive by one fairly regularly on on Blenheim, and uh, it, it already is it already is gone uh, fallow. So, so you don't have to plant anything there. And the third thing, my third idea, no more houses just down the street from me where I walk my dog frequently. Um, they built this gigantic house. This house is like the size of six houses all fused together. It's ugly as thin and it has almost no yard, but what would have been the backyard is all concrete. They got rid of the grass. They got rid of the trees. There's no foliage. It's just all concrete ban yards that are all concrete. Well, I think there's a funny thing that's happening. They want density, right? So they can have some more people in. But instead, what happens is people build gigantic houses. And I know the house um, down your street that's just been built. It's a gigantic house. And it's not going to be a a house that every room is filled or something like that. There's lots of, of smaller houses where people are living, uh, living, you know, not living large. They're They're living very frugally. Uh, in a smaller home, and then that house gets knocked down, and a gigantic house is built. And often, it's if it's not vacant, it's close to vacant. There might be two people living in it. That's three thousand square feet. There's so many of those, especially at like well, all of Vancouver. And I was just about to say the on the west side of Vancouver, but your neighborhood too. There's a bunch of those houses uh, out in Killarney now, and uh, I'm in. and they're if not I, necessarily. If I leave, my landlord would be foolish to rent this to another person. They should tear it down and build three houses on this lot. Well, they'll tear it down and they might build two houses and they'll each be 3,000 square feet and there might be one person living in there or it might be owned by a foreign buyer uh, or it might be a family of three people, but it's a gigantic, gigantic space. But that's, of course, people want things like like uh, rooms to watch movies in, a theater in their house. Uh, they want all sorts of things in their house. You know, just people are... are not living uh, in a manner which is uh, conducive to uh, the further support of our planet. And, I, you know, I live low, as you know. Well, you and I both sort of still, in our own way, live like when we were students. I'm frugal. I don't go spending a ton of money. I, I live low, and, and it's just, you know, I try and pass that on. I know, and you, same with you. Um, you know, you could noodles. you could afford like three nights a week. You could afford to be driving around in a, uh, a Cadillac SUV if you wanted, or a Bentley, probably even. 
Uh, but you know, we don't, uh, I don't know about that. Maybe like a used Bentley, like a well, yeah. Bentley Continental R. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't go that old. It would be much too expensive to repair. But the point here is that you, you uh, yeah, I know I got that. I wasn't going to, I'm, I'm tired of the talk of that Bentley. Um, point here is that, uh, that, um, you know, people don't need to live this lifestyle where they always feel they have to have bigger, more, more bigger. And it's, uh, it's something that I have never aspired to strangely. And so many people seem to, and I just cannot connect to it in anyway, my brain. Let's move those on. Those are my those are my climate ideas. Yeah. You can feel free to take them. Yeah. They don't tax people, they don't cost money, and they're pretty. Um moving on, the BC Supreme Court uh issued a judgment that is definitely worth talking about. And I know I sent it to you like about 90 minutes ago or something and you probably haven't read it very closely, but there are two really really good things out of this judgment from Justice Jenkins. Um so this is the case of Mr. Cluett. Did you read it? Do you want me to give the summary? You're going to have to give me the summary, but the the listeners also need the summary if we're going to learn anything. You well, know. I thought maybe you would give the summary. No, I haven't. I haven't read it. I started to read it, and I went down to the end, and I was making dinner for my kids. Right. Okay. So Mr. Cluett, uh, he's driving along in Chilliwack. Um, police are also driving along in Chilliwack, looking for a stolen vehicle, and uh, Mr. Cluett uh, makes a U-turn in front of the officer, and then heads east. And the officer, Constable Kern, uh, sees him do this and thinks to himself, all U-turns are illegal. So he tries to catch up with the vehicle, finds it, pulls it over. Um, it's now parked in front of an apartment building, but he conducts a traffic stop in any event, um, runs the plate, gets out, issues the guy a ticket for prohibited U-turn. And... Uh, after he... It can't end there. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, it doesn't end there. After he issues him the ticket, he asks him to give his driver's license. And the guy says, I don't have a driver's license. And the officer then says, are you prohibited from driving? Which, of course, is an arrestable offense. And Mr. Cluett says, yes, I am prohibited from driving. So, naturally, he gets arrested for driving while prohibited. He's put in the back of the police car um, with handcuffs, still not read his charter rights or warnings. Um, and then the officer broadcasts on the radio, hey, I've made an arrest for prohibited driving. Um, and uh, he gets back up to come. Um, there's some you know, events that occur. Ultimately, uh, he's read his right to counsel after the backup arrives, after he's given his full name, date of birth, when the officer runs a check and confirms that he's also breached a condition. Um, so now he's arrestable for breach. And then the police set about searching his car. Where they, they find? Say, well, they say they searched <clears throat> the car for three reasons. And the reasons they give are, are important. The first reason, they say, was incident to the arrest. You know, oh, it was a driving while prohibited arrest, so I was looking for things like a driver's license or insurance documents or identity papers. Reason number two uh, they give for searching the car um, was uh, that they felt uh, that it was uh, necessary for officer safety with Mr. Cluett handcuffed and now three. Yeah, they, they, they have some problems here. Okay. What's the third reason that they provide? <laughs> and the, the third reason they give, and probably the most likely to have flown, uh, was an inventory search, which is a justifiable search if you're impounding a car. 
So in the course of executing this search... But they're not impounding a car on a drive while prohibited. They're, they're just they are. To- having they it towed off the mandatory. road. <clears throat> a drive while prohibited, it's a mandatory seven-day impound. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So that's yeah. the impound. Well, they, yeah. yeah, but they don't always. I've had people who are driving while prohibited where they had somebody else's car. And they d- police didn't. It's a mandatory seven-day impound. Oh, okay. Well, maybe it's been a while. I don't. <laughs> anyway. You're the one who does them all now. So I yeah. <laughs> who are you going to trust? <laughs> the host or the co-host? <laughs> like who is this plane? Is this plane is <clears throat> crashing, Paul? Who are you going to trust? The pilot or the co-pilot? Uh, yeah. I, I don't. Think, <laughs> that's not a great analogy. I mean, <laughs> the point is that uh, n- no matter what, I always defer to you because I always yep. lose the argument. Anyway, go ahead. So, inventory search. Uh, And in the course of this supposed inventory search, they took two photos of the back of the car. They made no list of anything except for the items of interest that they found in the car, namely some drugs. Okay. What did they find? Uh, I don't even know what drug it was. I want to say meth, but I could be wrong. Okay, so they found something that was enough and a quantity enough that they were going to charge him as a result of finding the substance. Weirdly, weirdly, like, they arrested him for possession, which is strange because they're not supposed to be prosecuting personal possession. But then after arresting him for possession, they did a further search and discovered cash and guns and more drugs. (laughs) Oh, guns. Yeah, guns are always a problem because that's the the old 24-2. Yeah, so he had a lot of a lot of charges. So the two things that I find most interesting about this case, there's actually three, but the, the two things that I find most interesting first are the issue of whether or not he was actually entitled to be stopped and whether or not the traffic stop was lawful. Because it's very rare, as you well know, that the, the police who conduct a traffic stop are determined to have unlawfully conducted that stop because of the broad authority to, you know, investigate sobriety, fitnessing, licensing, et cetera. Um, it's also easy for them to justify it after yeah. the fact. But here's the thing. This officer thought all U-turns are illegal, and you and I have debated about U-turns before. Um, all U-turns are not illegal. Exactly. <laughs> this is not true. Um, the Motor Vehicle Act prohibits U-turns when it's not safe to make them, or uh, where um, they're at a controlled intersection. And the officer didn't know that. And he agreed in cross-examination that he could have looked up on his police computer, Section 168 of the Motor Vehicle Act, which is the section he put on the ticket, and determined whether or not he was correct in his understanding of the law. But he didn't. He just issued the ticket based on his misunderstanding of the law. Yeah. So in the United States, and, you know, you and I have all these American friends, there was a big controversy several years ago because the United States Supreme Court said if an officer's wrong, they just didn't know the law, and they pull someone over in good faith, thinking that they'd violated the law even if they didn't, then that's still a valid traffic stop. Yeah, just I know. We've, we've, we've heard that discussion in the States, and those are that's one of those things that they tell us, the American lawyers tell us, and we hear it and we think, oh my gosh, how can that be? And then we tell them our situation where we can't get disclosure, for example, on the maintenance of a approved <laughs> instrument, and they're like, oh, how can that be? Yeah. You guys have the stinch comb. No, no, it doesn't work that way. So 
um, Mr. Kluet argued that his stop was unlawful. And essentially, the court does this review of Canadian law, looking through a bunch of B.C. Supreme Court decisions dealing with unlawful traffic stops, a Supreme Court of Canada decision dealing with an unlawful traffic stop, and then a recent decision of the Alberta Court of Appeal. And the distinguishing factor appears to be whether or not the ignorance or willful blindness towards the circumstances giving rise to the right to detain or arrest or stop a person, um, whether that's egregious and extreme or not. And in the context of a traffic stop, the distinguishing line is, according to this judgment in Mr. Kluwitz's case, drawn where the officer had the tools available to them to check that they were right. Right there. Could have looked it up right there. Sitting in, yeah. a, sitting in his cruiser, he's pulled the person over, he's running the plate. He could have checked right then. He's got his little flip book, yep. um, which gives you enough guidance, even in that book, to tell you whether or not it is a, uh, it, it was an offense. Yeah, and Delbert. of course, you can also radio somebody else and yep, ask them, look, that. I just saw a guy run a, do a U-turn here, the middle of the road, you know, the middle of the street. Is, did he commit an offense? And let's be honest, Paul, they can also phone me. Because I will tell them. I know. <laughs> some some do phone you. Some text phone you. Me. Is this an there, there was a time that the, there was a few officers who used to text me and ask me questions about things. And I would just hope that that person wouldn't contact me after the fact because I was more than willing to defend them. Yeah. But not in those circumstances after I'd advised the police officer. But yeah, they can, uh, they can also phone you. But I'm sure that was not in the judgment. You could have contacted... Driving lawyer, Kyla Lee. She has a <laughs> podcast that's listened to by thousands of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, very interesting. Found it to be an unlawful um, traffic stop on the basis of that. My problem with the American a- approach is that it encourages police officers to be stupid. Um, and this approach encourages police officers to, to use their one phone call to call a friend, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, better. Uh, but back in the day when I started practicing, police officers were expected to know the laws that they were going to enforce beforehand. And Mm -hmm. we see police officers who are like lacking general knowledge of things like this when they're doing traffic enforcement and it's, uh, it's upsetting to see. You should just be, you know, you should know the law and, and being, and apply the law. Well, the other thing that I found fascinating about this case has to do with your right to counsel. And I've been slowly trying to develop some jurisprudence that had kind of stalled maybe in like 15 years ago on the issue of police switching the focus of their investigation. So like Mr. Cluett, he stopped for a U-turn. And then as the officer's dealing with him, he starts to think, oh, maybe Mr. Cluett might be a prohibited driver. I'm going to start to investigate that through the stellar investigative method of going, are you a prohibited driver? <laughs> and the court says that that was essentially an incriminating question, that Mr. Cluett wasn't entitled to be told the reason for the traffic stop when he's pulled over for the U-turn violation because 10A and 10B are suspended when it comes to the Enforcement of Motor Vehicle Act offenses because the detention is brief, usually just long enough to issue a person a ticket and send them on their way. But where the investigation shifts into something that is now an arrestable offense, with different jeopardy, like driving while prohibited, then the 10B rights are triggered before the officer asks the question. Before. 
which I love because it, it's it's essentially. Well, it has to be before. How else can it be effective? I mean, the whole well, point is to alert the person to their right to counsel before they make the incriminating yeah. statement. So the police yeah, officers but, already turned their mind to the issue of, oh, okay, now I see there's a different offense here and I want to I want to interrogate the person and they're now detained for this. Yes, but how often do we see the police? They're doing these investigations. They're And everything they're, switches and they don't do and anything. Everything switches and they don't do anything and they ask that really clever question. Sorry, I like to make fun of the question because like, you know, you think of police as having smart investigative methods, but like 60% of the time it's just them asking, did you do this? Yeah, I did, officer. Like, <laughs> this is why you remain silent. Um, but but the, the idea that 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 is now BC Supreme Court confirmed prohibited conduct on the part of the police. That affects so many driving while prohibited prosecutions right now. Oh yeah, because it because happens. It follows. happens regularly. It happens fairly everything regularly. Systemic and everything that follows in Mr. Cluett's case was excluded. All of his statements and admissions were found to be made in violation of the charter and excluded from evidence. So all of those cases where our clients are stopped and the officer then asks them if they're prohibited rather than saying, I'm now investigating you for driving while prohibited. You have the right to counsel, the right to, you know, not but say anything. You know what? There's a big problem with that. There's a big problem with your approach. Do you want me to tell you what it is? No, because I don't like to be problems. I can, I can hold it for another day, but I can tell you no. what it is. Um, tell me the problem. The problem is discoverability. So the police officer, even if he asked the question or didn't answer, ask that question, is going to find it out. Now, in this case, he compels the guy to participate in, in providing evidence against him in contrary violation to his, his 10B right and continues to detain him and then ultimately conducts an unlawful search of his vehicle. Unlawful search of his vehicle because it's not necessary for a drive while prohibited at all in any way, shape or form. And in this case, the police officer, what would he have done otherwise? He was going to issue the guy a ticket. He would have looked him up. He would have discovered he was prohibited. So it was going to, it was inevitably going to happen. And it wasn't necessary for this guy to state this uh, uh, in, in order for the police officer to to discover it. I mean, you know, it's the type of thing that it's on a police computer, right? So it's just right. a matter of the police officer checking. So I don't think I don't think it has the same impact. I mean, it's a charter violation, no doubt. It's a charter breach, but but it's a charter breach that that is for something that is inevitably going to be discovered in the process of the of the issuance of the ticket. I don't I don't know that you could say it's <clears> going to inevitably be discovered. In many the cases, may ask it will for be. the license. The guy might say, "I don't have it." The officer might just take the guy at his word for who he says he is. They always it check their computer. They don't always check. In fact, I just finished a case where they didn't check. Oh, well, there you go. Okay. So, so there may be occasions, but I think, I don't think it's as, I don't think it's some sort of bulletproof defense to a drive while prohibited just because the guy replies to the police officer. But well, it's a, in if, this case, it's a very specific question though. Even if it is discoverable. It at least gets you a breach. It at least gets you to 24-2. It gets you out of SPC court. And it throws a charter argument into the middle of a driving while prohibited case, which extends the length of a driving while prohibited trial, which makes it more likely to resolve. There, there's no doubt. Any, any argument you can get in a drive while prohibited case will increase the likelihood of the Crown being willing to, to dance with you.
Yeah, uh, I mean, because if they most of the time, it's it's car. most of the time the biggest impediment in a drywall prohibited case is a. Do you really want to give the person one year when they had a cell phone ticket and then drove while prohibited? Mm-hmm. And b. Um, the, uh, the 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 process of running a trial, and mm-hmm. those are the two things that are are the reason that you end up negotiating something out on a drywall prohibited case. They're looking at it and they're saying, you know, I run a trial with Kyla Lee in a drywall prohibited case. It's three days. It's not worth doing it. It's uh, the a public, five, interest public interest at five thousand dollars a day for the a court, a judge, uh, a prosecutor, a police officer, a clerk, a sheriff, and the room. And yeah, the, the uh, I know, so five grand a day, say, uh, and you end up with a drywall prohibited that takes three days, $15,000. How is that in the public interest? You're much better off to negotiate it out with the, with the lawyer. Yep. And the third <clears throat> thing that's of interest in this case, before we get to your favorite part of the podcast, is just very briefly, on the inventory search, because you and I have seen plenty of cases where police say they're doing an inventory search, and then find something that is supposedly inculpatory, often in impaired driving cases where they're impounding the car for the 24-hour, and they find, like, liquor containers or receipts or... Flap of cocaine. (laughs) Yeah, whatever, right? The court takes a pretty hard line on the idea of an inventory search. It says, I'm not going to believe you. We shouldn't believe you that you're doing an inventory search when you don't generate an inventory list. When the only photos you take are of the items of interest and don't show all of the items in the car, and then you come to court and you're like, oh yeah, well, it was an inventory search. It wasn't an inventory search if you didn't take an inventory. Well, and that the and they're locking inventory. up the car and it's going to a it's going to a uh, a towing yard. So right, but that's, you know, that's why they do the inventory search so that if you've got six thousand dollars cash in your glove box that the officers didn't know about and you didn't want to tell them about, they can write it down. And if the cash goes missing, then we know who took it, the impound people. Uh-huh. Or the <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, I mean, I think it's a different, I think it's a different point when you're seizing stuff that's on a person as opposed to seizing things that are in a car because you lock your car, your car is going to a locked impound yard. Uh, and I think it's relatively safe to conclude that the tow truck drivers are not going to go searching through your car. But you never know. That's that's why they have the right to do the inventory search. And if they're not actually, if that's, you know, a false pretense for conducting a search, the court will not allow the evidence that is flowing as a result of the search. Well, we'll see, because the 24-2 analysis can change all the time. It's the, uh, we used to have this specific strict requirement uh, with respect to evidence that was obtained in such circumstances. And then, of course, it was decades ago now, or a decade and a half ago, that it, that fell away. And now we've got the uh, do-what-you-feel-like test. Yep. Does it bring the administration of justice into disrepute? Yeah, if you think so. Either way, will it bring it into disrepute if you don't put it in? Well, there you go. Well, let's talk <laughs> about, Paul, something that will bring the administration of justice in relation to civil suits related to car insurance into disrepute. Excellent. Is this the... The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. The Week. Yes. Yeah. It is. This is a woman who uh, is um, only referred to as M.O. in court documents, uh, suing the... um, Sorry, I've got a Google ad covering the content on the page, reporting that to Google. Um, Suing Geico 
insurance company, all of that seems very normal. You get car insurance. You, you, know? you know, sometimes you have to sue an insurance company. Very You're suing the lizard. <laughs> suing the there's a negligence in a case. There's an accident yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's from Missouri. She's seeking a million dollars from Geico in federal court. Did she have an accident? Not, she did not have an accident, Paul. She had sex in the backseat of a car and got an STI. Oh, my goodness. Yes. She got HPV. Yeah. Having uh, sex in the backseat of a Hyundai Genesis. You know, there's a lesson to be learned about having sex in a Hyundai. No, there isn't. <laughs> there's nothing to be said about having sex in a Hyundai. Don't knock the Hyundai here. It's not the Hyundai. Well, yeah, I know, but that doesn't mean that that's the the issue as to whether or not she would she would contract this uh, this ailment. Um, but uh, let's think about this here. You know, duty of care, breach of the duty, damage resulting. I, I mean, there's a there's a lawsuit there relates to the car. So she's suing foreseeability. Well, I mean, they should they should be calculating this when they're selling this insurance. They should be working this into their numbers. They should be having people sign some some waiver that they're not going to insure in circumstances of this. You know, this is uh, that that the the the, the, uh, the purchaser of, of the insurance is not covered in these circumstances. Taking these risks, having sex in a car like this. So she's suing the insurance company because she contracted uh, HPV having sex in a Hyundai Genesis that was insured by somebody that had insurance through Geico. Yeah. And fascinating. Um, and Geico has launched a countersuit against her, claiming that this is collusion and essentially extortion, that they're deliberately filing this nuisance lawsuit, that they colluded together. They knew that there was a risk. They deliberately had unprotected sex in the back of a car. And now they're trying to capitalize on it by suing the insurer. Well, they're just Geico's throwing everything at the wall, which is typical in in these sorts of cases where you're claiming every different cause of action and every different defense. She's also they've also filed the lawsuit anonymously. Oh, they ha- they filed it anonymously to protect her to, to protect, protect her, her uh, identity. And identity. Geico's trying to uncover it. Oh, well, that's dirty of Geico to do that. I know. They're basically trying to, like, sex shame her into dropping her lawsuit. Yeah, I don't think they're going to succeed with that. But you never know. It's America. I have no clue. I mean, yeah. this is this is the way things work in other countries. I don't know how it would work in British Columbia. It's not something I would want to advise somebody about. Yeah. <laughs> if you have a... ICBC might want to take note, though. <laughs> this could be you where... Want- yeah. This could be where all the ICBC lawyers end up uh, looking no for. No fault doesn't cover sex in a car. Yeah. ICBC may pay you. Oh, my gonna goodness. going to get Eric McGracken on to run this whole time. Yep. Well, that's a good ridiculous driver of the week. I mean, they weren't driving, but it's very car related and it is ridiculous. There's no doubt about it. We've, we've always adopted a, a broad definition of driver. Very liberal concept when it comes to ridiculous driver of the week. True. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's our podcast, Paul. Well, I enjoyed this, Kyla. I look forward to next week. Hopefully, I'm your guest once again. I'm sure you will have some great topics. And we are moving. This is uh, the day that this comes out. This is moving day for Acumen Law after 13 years, 13 years to the month, uh, like 13 years at the uh, end of September. We moved into that location on Beatty Street in Vancouver. Now we are moving from Beatty to Quebec. Yes. So if you need to contact us related to a driving law issue, our phone number is still the same, 604. 
685-8889. Our website is still the same, vancouvercriminallaw.com, or you can find us in person, but we're actually not open to in person, but in theory, uh, at 2425 Quebec Street in Vancouver, British Columbia. You can also see you on the back of the odd bus in Vancouver. There's now an ad with (laughs) Kyla on the back of a bus. We decided it just was the time to spend some money locally advertising. It's already generating controversy because some people are like, this ad is anti-transit. It's like, not anti-transit at all. It's anti-transit the, to say, get back in the driver's seat. People who want to be in the driver's seat don't want to be on the bus. <laughs> no, and the people who are seeing it are actually drivers. So, yeah. you know, it's people who are, who are driving and maybe it's just, it, I mean, the whole idea of, of certain types of advertising is just public discussion and recognition on the day that you need it. And it's not recognition for people who are riding on the bus. They're not looking at it. Nope. So there you go. See Kyla Lee on the back of a bus in Vancouver uh, any day soon. And uh, we will talk to you later, Kyla. Okay. Bye-bye.